Hello, and welcome to this Clinical Care Solutions Podcast. We hope you find this podcast informative and valuable to your daily practice. Now, let's get started. Greetings, and welcome to this presentation titled Managing Heart Failure in Older Adults, Best Practice Recommendations for Diagnosis and Treatment. I am Dr. Javed Butler, Professor and Chairman of the Department of Medicine at University of Mississippi in Jackson, Mississippi, and I am delighted to be giving this presentation. These are my disclosures. Let's start with some epidemiologic significance as to why we are focusing this presentation on heart failure in older adults. And part of the reason is that heart failure is primarily a disease of older adults. And older adults, although have a lot of overlapping features in terms of the biology of heart failure and in turn, the response to therapy, there are other issues related to comorbidities and polypharmacy and uh, issues related to frailty and healthcare-seeking behaviors that make the management of heart failure a little bit more complicated like any other chronic disease as well. And therefore, part of the focus on the presentation today will be more typical heart failure-related biological concepts, but a little bit about the systems of care in older adults as well. This slide shows a little bit of the epidemiologic trends in patients with heart failure. It's the number one cause of hospitalization in Medicare beneficiaries. If you look at the incidence rate as we age, the risk of uh, developing heart failure increases pretty substantially. If you look at the lifetime risk of developing heart failure in Americans, say at the age of 40, it's pretty consistent about one in five, but obviously the absolute risk goes higher as is shown here. And in individuals uh, over the age of 65, the risk is higher and each subsequent year, uh, year the risk continues to increase pretty substantially. Now, in terms of the heart failure pathophysiology, this is a complicated slide, but the message is relatively pretty simple. And the message is that the younger we are, the chances of developing heart failure related to complications of, of hypertension or ischemic heart disease is higher as we start growing older the mix of comorbidities affecting the development of heart failure increases. And as those things happen, the, the mixture uh, of heart failure with reduced ejection fraction versus heart failure with preserved ejection fraction uh, changes over time as well. Now, part of the problem here is that there is no distinct feature in heart failure with reduced or preserved ejection fraction or younger individuals or older individuals. So it's not that hypertension only affects the old people or HFPEF is only seen in older people or only older women develop HFPEF and younger men develop heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. There is a lot of overlap between the two conditions, but in general, patients who, are, uh, uh, who develop heart failure with reduced ejection fraction have more ischemic heart disease, more uh, severe reductions in ejection fraction, more neurohormonal activations. And as we grow older and older, uh, related uh, abnormalities to left ventricular hypertension hypertrophy, fibrosis, heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, diastolic dysfunction, more older women, uh, that phenotype tends to predominate uh, in older ages uh, more so. Uh, this becomes actually even more important uh, as we have many trials that are positive for heart failure with reduced ejection fraction in terms of device and drug-based therapy. We don't have as many trials that are positive. However, that is changing when it comes to heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, and we will discuss that as we proceed with our presentation. Now, what about the diagnosis of heart failure in, uh, in older adults? 
Well, it's not easy. And the reason why it is not easy is that the symptoms of heart failure, like tiredness and fatigue and lack of uh, energy levels, these are non-specific uh, symptoms. Now, some of the signs are more specific, like uh, uh, lower extremity edema, but even they are not very specific, right? I mean, people can be taking calcium channel blockers for hypertension and have some lower extremity edema. But in terms of the symptoms, they are really overlapping. So uh, hypothyroidism, uh, anemia, weight gain, just aging-related uh, uh, changes in his skeletal muscles, all of these things can have overlapping symptoms. So keeping an eye out for heart failure in the differential diagnosis becomes really, really important. You know, uh, the, the commonest place where heart failure gets first diagnosed is the emergency room. But it's not because the emergency room is the right place for diagnosis. It's because patients develop these symptoms in the outpatient setting for weeks, sometimes even months. Uh, and while we, we, we evaluate uh, COPD and lung disease and anemia and thyroid problems, uh, we don't necessarily rule out heart failure till the person gets into extremis, comes into the emergency room, and that is the first time they get natriuretic peptide tested or uh, an echocardiogram and a diagnosis of heart failure is made. Uh, and therefore, uh, trying to diagnose heart failure and keeping a low threshold uh, for evaluation and for risk in our radar screen when we are evaluating patients with these symptoms becomes relatively uh, important. So, Again, differential diagnosis, you know, lower extremity edema could be related to different drugs that are uh, being used. If it is unilateral, especially, uh, then things like uh, DVT becomes uh, important. Uh, obviously, if you have uh, heart failure and fluid retention, it may not be primarily myocardial process. It may be valvular disease, aortic stenosis, pericardial disease. So echocardiogram becomes important and obviously decrease exercise tolerance and shortness of breath the differential diagnosis is pretty wide that we discussed that we need to look at these things. So how do you make a diagnosis for heart failure? Uh, first thing is to suspect it. Uh, in the past, uh, we used to rely a lot on the chest x-ray. Obviously, chest x-ray has a very good positive predictive value if you have a dilated heart or congestion, uh, but has a very poor negative predictive value because if you don't see these abnormalities, a person may still have heart failure. Uh, however, laboratory testing, uh, some for the differential diagnosis as part of the evaluation, renal function and iron levels are important. But in terms of suspicion and in terms of the diagnosis, the number one thing to consider is the use of natriuretic peptides. And if the natriuretic peptides are high, referring a patient for echocardiogram uh, is important. And therefore, natriuretic peptides as a class one recommendation in terms of suspecting heart failure and then uh, assessing a natriuretic peptide BNP or anti-proBNP uh, and uh, subsequently guiding the management of patients becomes pretty important. Now, what about the different ejection fraction? Uh, you know, traditionally, all the trials that have included patients with heart failure and reduced ejection fraction have included patients with EF less than 40%. There is nothing magically about that. Uh, that is a, a slowly a evolving paradigm. We will see how uh, this evolves. Uh, it is quite likely that in the future we will classify heart failure with reduced ejection fraction as EF less than 55 or less than 60% and heart failure with normal ejection fraction as greater than 60%, but we are not there just quite yet. So for today, we will classify heart failure with reduced ejection fraction as less than 40%, heart failure with mid-range ejection fraction as 40 to 50%, and heart failure with preserved ejection fraction as greater than 50%.
Now, let's not confuse that with the so-called NYHA classification or New York Heart Association class, which is if you do have heart failure, how advanced are your symptoms? So these patients are then further classified based on their symptomatology. Class one are patients who have heart failure, but they're actually doing pretty okay. and They're able to do things. Class two, they're still able to do activities of daily living, but they get symptomatic. Class three, they get symptomatic at activities less than ordinary. And class four are patients who have symptoms with minimal exertion or perhaps even at rest. So now let's talk about pharmacotherapy for heart failure. This looks like pretty complex, but we can distill it down to pretty simple. If you have uh, congestion, give patients diuretics. Other than relieving congestion, there is no uh, place for uh, Lasix or furosemide. Uh, it's only for management of congestion. Beyond congestion, basically give quad therapy, four therapies for patients with heart failure and reduced ejection fraction. RNA therapy with angiotensin receptor neprilysin inhibitor. If velcartan sacubitril or RNA is unavailable, then you can use an ACE inhibitor. Then evidence-based beta blocker, then evidence-based MRA. And now we have more and more data with SGLT2 inhibitors. If after this quad therapy, the ejection fraction is recovered, use this therapy lifelong. If, however, the ejection fraction is still low, less than 35%, refer to cardiology for a defibrillator placement. And if they have significant symptoms, evaluate for cardiac resynchronization therapy. Since we have only 30 minutes today, we will not be talking about device-based therapies, but we will only talk about drug-based therapy. So what are some of the data on the basis of which this recommendation is made? Well, we know almost for 30 years, based on earlier trials, that ACE inhibitors improve outcomes for patients with heart failure. But now we know that combination of ACE inhibitors uh, with neprilysin inhibitor, valsartan sacubitril, improve outcomes even further than just ACE inhibitors alone. That was tested in the largest trial ever done in patients with heart failure, the Paradigm HF trial, that showed that as compared to high-dose ACE inhibitor with enalapril, if we give valsartan sacubitril, there is a 20% further reduction in the risk of cardiovascular death or heart failure hospitalization on the basis of which now there's a class one recommendation. So for those of our colleagues who don't uh, think about the guidelines all the time, just to put it in perspective, class one recommendation is good idea, definitely do it. Class three recommendation is a bad idea, definitely don't do it. And then class two is in the middle. It's a good idea. You might consider it, but it's not as, as strongly recommended as a class one that you definitely ought to do it. So there's a class one recommendation that heart failure with reduced ejection fraction patients ought to be getting a uh, RAS inhibitor. And it's your choice whether you want to use an ACE inhibitor or an ARNI to start with. But once somebody is on an ACE inhibitor, they should be transferred over to an ARNI as a class one recommendation. Is a class three recommendation to not give an ACE inhibitor or an RNA in combination because of an increased risk of angioedema. If somebody has history of angioedema, don't use an RNA. But to distill it, if somebody's on ACE inhibitor, stop it for 36 hours and start it, uh, start an RNA. That would be a class one recommendation. Now, again, very much like ACE inhibitors, I won't go over the data with beta blocker. We have known that for a very long time. 
In terms of the what is new uh, uh, in terms of the data, another trial that has came out was the SHIFT trial. So what the SHIFT trial uh, tested is that if you're in sinus rhythm and still have a heart rate greater than 70, despite optimally tolerated beta blockers, so that would be either guideline-driven beta blocker doses, 25 BID of parvadolol or uh, a 200 milligram of long-acting metoprolol, or high doses of beta blocker are not tolerated by the patient because of low blood pressure or what have you. But your heart rate is really not, not in the 60s. That's what we are trying to do. And patients were given this specific sinus node modulator drug called Evabradine. When we did that in those patients with persistent high heart rate, now remember, this is not a drug for atrial fibrillation. So you have to be normal sinus rhythm. So normal sinus rhythm, low ejection fraction, heart rate still more than 70. If you give them Evabradine, as one can see, there was a still a substantial reduction in the uh, combined endpoint of cardiovascular death or heart failure hospitalization. So this trial got a class 2A recommendation. In other words, if somebody had persistent high heart rate, it's a good idea to start them on Evabradine. Why did Valsartan-Sacubitril get a class 1 recommendation? Definitely do it. And this got a class 2A recommendation. Well, the difference between the two is that this trial, the primary endpoint was positive, but was largely driven by heart failure hospitalization. There was no mortality benefit per se. Whereas with Valsartan-Sacubitril, there was a mortality benefit seen by itself. Then uh, we already know again for MRA, in the interest of time, I won't go over the classic data that we know for 15, 20 years, but unless there is a contraindication like hyperkalemia or GFR less than 30, the patient should be given spironolactone or a plerinone as well. So what is the fourth drug, which is now the new drug for quad therapy? That is the SGLT2 inhibitors. First, we had cardiovascular uh, outcomes trial in patients with diabetes that showed that in patients with diabetes, SGLT2 inhibitors prevent new onset heart failure. But as we uh, figured out more about the mechanism of action of these drugs, they improve cardiac remodeling, improve diastolic dysfunction, reduce LDH, improve, in, improve vascular function like aortic stiffness or endothelial function, and improve renal function and decrease visceral adiposity-related inflammation and oxidative stress. The question came up that, sure, these drugs may have been developed for the management of diabetes, and sure, they prevent uh, heart failure development in diabetes, but if a drug can do all of these things, then maybe these drugs are cardiovascular risk-modifying agents and should be given to patients with heart failure irrespective of diabetes. So indeed, when we did heart failure trials, uh, they were done regardless whether you have diabetes or not. So heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. We did two trials with dapagliflozin and empagliflozin. A big success with dapagliflozin, as one can see here, a 26% relative risk reduction in cardiovascular death or heart failure hospitalization. And diabetes did not matter at all. Regardless whether you have diabetes or not, the patients benefited with the use of dapagliflozin. The second trial that was done was with empagliflozin, a little bit higher risk patient population, and we saw exactly the same result. 25% relative risk reduction in cardiovascular death, heart failure, hospitalization, and a 30% reduction in all uh, uh, total heart failure, hospitalization. Uh, diabetes did not matter whether you have diabetes or not. So in other words, SGLT2 inhibitors, now the way we think about it, 
These are cardiovascular risk-modifying agents that reduce cardio, improve cardiovascular outcomes irrespective of whether or not you have diabetes. These drugs have also been shown to improve renal function outcomes as well. So what about renal function in heart failure patients? So that was tested uh, in these trials as well. So in the emperor reduced trial with emperor gliflozin, the curve, the, the EGFR slope declines. So very much like ACE inhibitors, you see some initial dip in the GFR, which is intraglomerular hemodynamic changes, but overall they lead to stabilization of the renal function. That led to a reduction in EGFR slope. The estimated glomerular filtration rate slope decline was reduced by about 1.73 ml per minute per year. So in other words, if you look at the placebo arm here, and placebo is a little bit of a misnomer here, right? I mean, placebo means 90 plus percent RAS inhibitor use and 70 plus percent MRA use. But despite of that, you see this decline in uh, EGFR. But if you look at with SGLT2 inhibitor, that decline was reduced by about 1.73 mLs per year. Now, that as a trialist really excites me, but our patients are asking, what does that mean in terms of the clinical outcomes? So if you look at the clinical benefit in terms of uh, uh, renal uh, endpoints, uh, need for dialysis, need for kidney transplant, renal death, or 40% increase in GFR, a uh, reduction in GFR. If you look at this clinical composite, that was reduced by 50%. The rate was reduced by 50% relative risk reduction or was reduced in half. So that's where we are with the treatment for heart failure with reduced extraction. But I started my presentation by saying that these patients have a very high uh, comorbidity burden. So we have to worry about all of these comorbidities. If we treat heart failure well, but not treat the comorbidities, then we will not see all the benefit. So there is a lot of focus on treatment of comorbidities. Uh, so please keep the treatment of comorbidities in mind, atrial fibrillation, uh, obesity, uh, uh, diabetes, uh, all of these uh, have to be treated uh, very well. Now, in terms of anemia, if you have severe anemia, that will lead to symptoms. Uh, iron deficiency replacement has definitely been linked to improvement in symptoms and outcomes for the patients. Anemia per se, the treatment of mild to moderate anemia, has not been associated with improved heart failure outcomes. And then when it comes to central sleep apnea, the daytime sleepiness uh, in patients has been improved by the treatment of uh, sleep apnea, but central sleep apnea with adaptive servoventilation uh, has been associated with actually harm uh, of these patients. Uh, so obstructive sleep apnea seems like there is benefit, uh, but central sleep apnea, uh, we are trying to study it further. Blood pressure is central. We got to control the blood pressure of these patients. Uh, very important for the management of patients. The other thing is polypharmacy. So remember uh, that these patients uh, with multimorbidity are taking a lot of medications that are essential. Unfortunately, they are also taking a lot of medications that are not essential, like multivitamins and over-the-counter medications and, and inappropriate medications that may have side effects and interactions. Uh, so a good thorough uh, evaluation of all the drugs that the patients are taking and cutting down the medications that are either unproven or harmful to the patients will improve adherence with the medications that are really, really needed. Also, what is important is the lag time. So when you give the therapy to the patients, it takes them time for the remodeling or for the outcomes to get better for these patients. 
So again, the quicker we can give the patients the appropriate medications, the better it is. Not wait too long to give appropriate therapies. And some of these other therapies, like you know, DPP-4 inhibitors, some of them may actually not improve heart failure outcomes, giving SGLT2 inhibitor becomes important. Non-steroidals, if you can get by uh, with, say, Tylenol for arthritis and not give non-steroidals and have adverse effects on the renal function, will improve patients' tolerability. Uh, so again, management of polymorbidity and polypharmacy becomes really important. Then there are some other issues, uh, dietary uh, restrictions. So low-sodium diet uh, would be uh, important for the management of these patients. And patient education and caregiver education. Some of our older patients uh, have families that are really intricately involved in the care of our patients. So if, uh, education becomes really important, not only of our patients, but of the patient's caregiver as well. So while quad therapy for heart failure with reduced ejection fraction with army beta blockers, MRA, and SGLT2 inhibitors are standard of care, please let's also make sure that the patients understand the importance of these other lifestyle alterations as well. So try to limit the fluid intake to two liters a day, daily weight management, stop smoking, blood pressure control, lipid control, diabetes and obesity management, a low salt diet, weight management on a day-to-day -day basis, and if they have weight fluctuations and they have some dietary non-discretion, uh, and then they have a two-pound weight gain, uh, giving them instructions to maybe adjust a little bit of their diuretic dose, and then call uh, the patients, uh, tell the patients to call uh, the nurses or the physicians uh, if with increasing the diuretic dose, their weight have not uh, gone down, uh, or they have persistent symptoms, all of these will help avoid hospitalization. Care coordination, again, becomes really important, whether it is required for some uh, patients who are not totally understanding the different medications, maybe a pharmacist intervention, uh, maybe nurse practitioner. Uh, so care coordination, and this care coordination becomes really important if somebody is hospitalized, then transitions of care uh, becomes even more important, including some telemanagement. You know, in the past, the primary care physicians used to take care of the patients in the hospital and the outpatients. Now we provide care which is a little bit more segmented, and the inpatient care is different than the providers that provide outpatient care. So care coordination, especially with transitions of care, becomes really important. And then the issue is uh, how much can be managed in the primary care and when the patient should be referred to the specialist is another important uh, aspect of the care. So the basic medical care really is not high tech. It can completely be given in the primary care setting. All of these four therapies, valsartan, sacubitril, beta blockers, MRAs, mineral corticoid receptor antagonists, and SGLT2 can all be given in the primary care. But evaluation for ischemia, valvular heart disease will require some cardiology input. But then there are these other reasons for which you might want to refer the patient to a cardiologist as well, somebody who's intolerant to standard medical therapy, hypotension, persistent symptoms, persistent reduced ejection fraction, uh, issues related to pulmonary hypertension or need for transplant evaluation. All of these are the reasons by which you might want to refer to a cardiologist or recurrent hospitalization uh, despite of that. Remember, it's a continuum of care. Primary care is sort of the orchestra uh, conductor in the middle. Uh, lifestyle management, uh, and uh, if some referrals are needed for lifestyle management, like care with nutritionist or exercise physiologist, then the core is this quadruple therapy that I mentioned, 
cardiologists for devices or advanced therapies uh, like transplantation and also address palliative care if things are not working out the sooner that we do. As I said, that trials with SGLT2 inhibitors are relatively new. We are awaiting guideline update, but the American College of Cardiology has already come out with this expert consensus decision pathway recommending the use of uh, SGLT2 inhibitor. The other interesting thing is that with empagliflozin, uh, the trial went down all the way to GFR of 20, which is unusual because the other trials have usually stopped at a GFR of 30. So that is an additional benefit that we have as well. And then uh, talk about the, the transitions of care over time that I have already emphasized. Uh, remember that even in, uh, uh, if you look at overall, just giving ACE inhibitor versus beta blocker and moving that from the quadruple therapy of RNA, beta blocker, MRA, and SGLD2 inhibitors, on average, you're looking at 6.3 years of extra life. So we're not talking about a few weeks or months. We're talking about 6.3 years. But as we can see here on the curve, even in our octogenarian and nonagenarian patients, really at the extreme of age, we are looking at an excess of a year of excess survival. So giving these therapy and the sooner we can give at least low doses, even if patients cannot tolerate high doses, at least low doses, the sooner we can give the therapies, we can uh, expect some benefit. I apologize, this is a little bit of a blur slide, but this basically shows that all the therapies that we have tested in heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, when we look at across the age of the patients that are enrolled in the trial, we see no heterogeneity. All of our patients, younger or older, benefit. So there's no reason to withheld these therapies from older patients. That moves me to heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. I've spent about 27 minutes talking about heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. I'll talk only about one minute for heart failure with preserved ejection fraction because we don't have a lot of the trials that are positive yet. So we manage comorbidities, control blood pressure, atrial fibrillation, ischemia, all the general things except that we now actually have a trial which is positive, but it has not been presented yet. Just a few weeks ago, heart failure with preserved ejection fraction trial, Emperor Preserved. We now know the top-line results have been declared that the trial met its primary endpoint of cardiovascular death and heart failure hospitalization. So this is really exciting. This is for the first time that we have a positive trial, but we will know the details of the results soon. The trial has not been presented. And another trial, the liver with uh, dapagliflozin, is being uh, conducted, uh, and we don't know the primary results. So to summarize, quadruple therapy for heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, but along with the quadruple therapy, let's take care of the lifestyle and care coordination and diet and exercise and these other measures as well. And let's anxiously await the data where for heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. So we still have a couple of minutes. I'll be happy to answer some questions. I don't see any questions in the chat box, but please feel free uh, to uh, send uh, any questions that you might have. Otherwise, I hope that this presentation was of some use for you and your patients. While you are uh, uh, writing down the questions, uh, I do want to highlight a few things. Uh, you know, if you Think about it, none of the cardiovascular diseases, we make it as a symptom disease. Symptoms is core for the management of our patients, but we don't leave our patients with hypertension, dyslipidemia, diabetes, remain uncontrolled because the patient is doing okay. But somehow in heart failure, we, we have this inertia that we say, well, I will change the medication when patients have more symptoms, the patient is doing okay. That's 
probably not a good idea. We should treat them before they develop worsening heart failure so that we can avoid worsening per se. Uh, questions. Has Entresto been approved for patients with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction? It's a pretty interesting question. So there was a trial done called Paragon HF trial. The trial did show improvement in heart failure hospitalization, but that result was mostly in patients with heart failure and, and ejection fraction less than normal. Remember, heart failure, uh, uh, normal ejection fraction is a little bit dependent on preload and afterload. So the FDA did approve the therapy for chronic heart failure with a clause that the treatment benefit is mostly in patients with less than normal ejection. So what it means is that the window broadens from just not less than 40%, but say 40 to 50, 55% uh, in that range as well. So the answer is yes, but with a clause. Any use of anticoagulation for heart failure with very, very low EF? Yes. So if you have heart failure with reduced ejection fraction and atrial fibrillation, the answer is absolutely yes. The question is, what if you have really low ejection fraction and uh, but you're in normal sinus rhythm, but because of low ejection fraction, you are uh, have a, a propensity to form thrombus and anticoagulation helps. Well, you know, the, the, the results are a little bit mixed. It's not a class one indication. Part of the problem there is that we don't uh, scan for atrial fibrillation very closely. Uh, so there's not a class one indication. What I would say is that watch for that patient for atrial fibrillation very closely, and you can make a very relevant case of starting anticoagulation in the patient population. Beet juice in patients uh, and the dietary therapy, uh, well, so there's a lot of data with uh, antioxidants and coenzyme Q and possible benefit in exercise tolerance, but at the end of the day, we don't have really good uh, uh, phase three studies. So I don't know what to say in the absence of phase three studies, we are probably better off uh, avoiding these therapies. Uh, antidepressant, uh, safe from a cardiac point of view. So again, uh, yes, treatment of depression may be good for the patient in general. The big issue comes up with QTC monitoring. So just make sure if you give antidepressant, you follow the EKGs for QT interval because of the risk of certain cardiac death. Other than that, uh, giving it is a good idea. So we are a little bit, a uh, minute or so uh, over the time. I've answered all the questions thus far. Thank you so very much for staying a little bit over time and answering these additional questions. Very much appreciate it. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and thank you for tuning in. Make sure to subscribe to the Clinical Care Solutions podcast available in over 14 platforms so you never miss an episode. Podcast episodes are also available on www.clinical-care.org under our resource center. Thank you for listening.